Welcome back, everyone, to Coffee House Blunders Season 2, the Queen's Gambit Edition. I'm James Montemagno. I'm a program manager by day, chess aficionado by night, and additionally, sometimes Batman. I'm Batman. <laughs> yes, and with me, my best friend in the entire world, international master and chief chess officer or chief content officer, however you want to say it, yeah, chess.com, yeah. Daniel Wrench. How's it going, buddy? Going good, man. That was a very fast and furious start. I liked it. You sounded like a DJ from like a small town in like Sandusky, Ohio, or something. Like, welcome back. I mean, you hit it. You hit it hard. I love it. Let's do it. Ricker, Ricker, Ricker. Welcome back, everyone, to Coffee House Blunders, the one and only podcast you need to break down the Queen's Gambit international sensation. Um, yeah, this um. Um, if here we get into it, we are episode four. If you haven't been following along yet, uh, season two of Coffee House Blunders, Danny and I have been breaking down every single episode of the Queen's Gambit with no spoilers of future episodes, which is important because I have not finished Queen's Gambit because I stopped when we started recording this podcast. So I can live it side by side, the deep, intense analysis that Danny gives off of, of every single game. And I bring in a unique perspective of, I'm not an international master or master or national master or really a good chess player at all. So <laughs> I, I was just waiting to see where that went. That was awesome. But you yeah. said you're watching real time, which makes it really special. This episode here, Middle Game, is the first official episode that you have that you had not seen um, until after we started the podcast. That's correct. Yeah. And and I watched it twice yesterday. So my wife and I sat down. We watched it normal. I only bugged her once or twice. Kind of, I was like, can I please rewind it 15 seconds just so I can get the notes? I was taking notes while we were watching right. it, but I left a big gap so I could rewatch it. And I wrote down some key things. I was like, I'm going to fact check that. I'm going to, you know, you know me on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm yeah. Like, what, what year was that TV made? What airplane was that? This episode, um, I didn't get that much. I only have one or two fun facts for us, but okay. this, this will say, I, I, Things got real on this episode, and not only in chess, but in life and is sad. Like the whole I was I walked away sad on so many levels yeah. about everything. And my wife was like, I knew that was gonna happen. Like, no big deal. We'll get to it. But I was just like, man, so sad. The whole the I, whole well, thing. Interesting. I can't wait to hear. Okay, you've got notes, and I, I also watched it again yesterday, also with my wife, and also hilariously. This was the fat. This was the uh, the first episode, or let's say last episode, which is why I almost just combined the words first and last with fast. No, but this was the fast episode Shauna had seen. Meaning, when I was first sort of given the task by the team at Chess.com, like, "Hey, man, this thing's blowing up. We're going to do tons of breakdown videos. We need you to binge mm -hmm. the show." I started it on a weekend, and she made it to this episode with me. So she's now seen the first four episodes twice as well. Uh -huh. And she hasn't seen episodes five, six, and seven. So she left the episode yesterday also saying the same thing. Like, now I remember why I didn't want to keep watching this show. It's so sad. I don't, what are we doing here? Right. So she actually, I'm like, don't worry. Now that we're doing the podcast, we're going to watch five, six, and seven. It does, it does um, pick up again. You're not going to be sad the whole time. So it's funny. She had the same feeling uh, Shauna did after, after last night watching it. And I'll say this when we were watching it yesterday, Heather. My wife, she she stopped me many a times, like three or four times throughout the the uh, episode and asked me questions. She's like, did you and Danny discuss this? Did you and Danny discuss this? Because right. she now knows that sort of I've been telling her, like, as we've been going on walks, I've been breaking down the first three episodes, all these different things. And she, and I was it was great because 
getting her perspective gives me additional questions to ask you. Cause I was like, Oh yeah, we did discuss that, but we didn't get that far because it didn't right. happen. Right. We didn't have right. a, we didn't have a, uh, a journey of a game ever. Like I've never right. experienced that. And that happened in this episode. And she's like, well, how does it actually work? And I'm like, I'm about to find out tomorrow. We're you know? find out. I thought you <laughs> so. were going to first tell me that story and be like, well, obviously I've responded with my wife. Why aren't you listening to the podcast? And then you would know what we've discussed. No, okay. uh, that's true. I don't know if she wants to put up with my voice for that much longer. Hey, so. my wife, same thing. Um, she made a comment about that this morning, which is neither here nor there. Let's continue. So now that being said, we open up in a, in a very fascinating part because, uh, you know, Beth Harmon, she wanted to learn Russian. She's mentioned it before. She's in Russian school. And you, you were in Russia for a long time, correct? And I, my first note is Danny spent a lot of time in Russia and I actually still speak Russian. I am not as fluent as I once was. And I, I won't say that I was ever, I, I was never like fully fluent. I think if you got that far, it would, you know, you could never lose it. But, um, you know, I've been to Russia a few times, but the time I spent the most there was uh, the summer of 2002. Um, so I was 16 because I turned 17 that October. That's right. So um, I uh, by the end, like, you know, you're across the line of a language months when you start thinking in that language. Yeah. So by the that's how I knew I was there for um, two full months, two full months plus. And like not only was I reading it like street signs and stuff, but I was also like when I was thinking about the chess moves, I played in several tournaments and it's actually where I got my first international master norm. So for those of you mm. who maybe somehow haven't listened to our first three podcasts, back up and listen to the third episode where I give kind of a detailed breakdown of what it is to actually become a titled chess player and earn what's called a performance norm. But that's at 16, that's where I earned my first international master norm, even though I didn't get the IM title until several years later. And I was thinking in Russian. I was like, and I, I was remembering that kind of reminiscing about it with Shauna, because I also took Russian classes. I had a private Russian tutor, um, you know, read a lot of Russian history and I was fascinated by it, by the, uh, the Bolshevik party and all things that grew into Trotsky and eventually Stalin and understanding the entire rise and fall of the Soviet union. So I do for Americans, I do know a lot about Russian history more than probably most. And, uh, and yeah, I did. I did speak Russian and spent a lot of time there. Yeah. And when you're fully immersed, it's completely different than learning in class because Heather is a Spanish major, but she also studied abroad in Spain and in Argentina. And whenever we travel, you know, it, it takes a little bit to get back up, but we were in Valencia and that's where she studied abroad and she was with some of her friends. And you could just tell maybe after a half an hour of just everyone speaking Spanish, she was like right back in it a hundred percent. And I'm just like enjoying it because I think it's a, you know, it's always fascinating i have no idea what's what's being said because i right. just know one language but that's really cool and where in russia did you stay moscow so moscow for the most part moscow um we did i did go to st petersburg leningrad for the white knights tournament um which is a famous tournament because it's during a time of the year where it never gets dark it's twilight basically um and mm. even in moscow i mean i remember the sun was setting post post 10 PM and up at three. And, and I didn't, you know, it took me a while to get back on a sleep schedule after being there for so long. Um, not just visiting for a tournament, but yeah, the white Knights is a famous tournament, um, during twilight and a lot of other things take place in those nights besides just chess, um, because people never sleep, but, um, but yeah, it's a famous tournament. And, uh, but other than that, I didn't really travel more than just kind of the greater Moscow, Moscow metropolitan area. Gotcha. Very cool. That, I mean, that's, that's awesome. I've never been to Russia. I've had a few friends that have traveled through. Uh, I love to travel. It's, 
Heather and I were talking about how it's actually kind of sad. I used to travel, you know, like you did, like yeah, yep. I was on the road 80% of the year and now this year yep. it's been none. So yep. um, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm excited to get a few shots in my arm and then head back on the road at some point in the next year or two. But um, yeah, it's definitely on my list to go travel because I think it's just very fascinating. And yeah, Beth is in school learning Russian. And, you know, this episode to me, you know, there's an arching theme here, which right. is... I'm not the director, right, uh, of this, but this episode starts to highly sexualize um, Beth Harmon right. in in first a more discreet way. So she's she's in class learning Russian. There's this dude. I, I don't not impressed by this dude. By the way, uh, yeah. he looks like a, a schmuck. But <laughs> um, <laughs> he kind of does. I don't know. Right. That and, was good. And you know, he invites her over. One, I love this sort of uh, hippie. Uh, wallpaper, whole setup they got going on, guitars on the wall, and you know, they're all smoking, having fun. So she's like maturing a little bit, and she's still right. actually seventeen. I got it wrong. I thought she was eighteen, but she hasn't turned. No, 18 I, I yet. made a note of that. That mm-hmm. things in this episode are probably not legal. Although in the sixties, it wasn't necessarily um, the same as it is nowadays. I guess. Um, yeah, the smoking of the era, though now it's even more legal than ever, technically. Right. So right. to smoke to smoke weed. So um, but you know, I think that um fascinatingly, you know, when we look back at the previous episode with towns, it actually makes towns even more creepier, you right. know, because we thought that she was 18 and she's not. And then it gets really weird because she's still 17 throughout this entire episode. And, you know, so in the opening scene with this dude. You know, I think that Beth has boys on her mind. So she's right. maturing. Her body's maturing. We've we've seen this go on. We cannot put our, you know, we cannot step into the shoes of a 17-year-old female. It's, it's impossible, right? So we can't really speak to Beth Harmon. Right. But I will say this, especially later in the episode, they start to do a lot more, like, sexualization of Beth for no reason. Like, I understand here where she's in this dude's home. She's got, like, you know... On the mind, some sex on the mind. She likes and she likes the candle, but we won't talk about this big penis candle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so just, it is. It's what it is. It's what it is. Okay. If yep. the work can only be as family friendly as the show, as there's can. a big, yep. big. I this is not a candle I would purchase personally. Right. Right. Um. Or I don't know why you would purchase this this <laughs> candle. Got, yeah. Yeah. That was a big um. Although in the '60s, you know, the free love kind of movement and hippies, yep. it was like, you know, uh, sometimes. In life, and, and if we look back at our culture, you know, you can't, you can't start the swinging of a pendulum and ever expect it goes calmly back to the middle. That's just something mm-hmm. that's just true about life and all things, right? So once a pendulum has been grabbed, it's been pulled to a side, it's going to swing violently for a while until it finds balance. And this is something that we know that generation, I mean, speaking to my parents and the baby boomers or whatever you want to call it, I mean, there was mm-hmm. a movement to sort of rebel against not just organized religion, so to speak, but against the thought of traditional sort of like sexuality, what was okay, what wasn't okay. I mean, you're literally in a scene, like you said, we can only be as clean as the episode. They're, they're borderline in like an orgy room, right? I mean, like <laughs> yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't go that direction, right? Obviously she has whatever experience she has there with, with this, you know, the schmuck as you call them. Uh, but, um, but yeah, right. I mean, that's, that's obviously a direct, sort of just reference to what was what was going on at the time and what was what young um, people were were doing as far as 
And if you think about it, I mean, think about who her stepmother or sorry, not stepmother, adopted mother was, right? You're talking about a more traditional woman who married into a relationship that we don't know what they were like when they were younger, but clearly at the time Beth Harmon came to their life in episode two, you're not talking about a woman who's happily and thriving in her marriage, right? We would not yeah. disagree with that. And, I would agree and, with that, yeah. And so, but the traditional roles were that there was no place for a woman to like find herself outside of a marriage for the most part. Divorces, at least initiated by a woman, were were exceedingly rare at the time, um, almost non-existent, right? It was like sort of be seen and not heard to a degree, despite how miserable you are. And then there was a generation that came up after them that rebelled, you know, aggressively against the sort of traditional way that, you know, um, that couples were there. So, so sort of, we'll just call it free love and, and different sexual partners was a part of the time, right. And part of what they were doing to find balance and what you would argue was maybe previously in the pendulum, maybe too extreme the other way, right. In terms of traditional views and what was okay and wasn't okay. So I, I just kind of look at it like that. And I look at the sixties as kind of an era that, you know, you just look at the way generations go. And that was kind of what was going on. There's a lot of stuff like that. So, you know, and penis candle, were... penis candle or not, it maybe you didn't have a penis candle, James, but people had penis candles back then. Pe- okay? Penis candles and water beds and water, <laughs> and beds, water Danny. beds. There was uh, I had and to rewatch and, I was, yeah. like, and yeah. I was like, what is that noise? So, so <laughs> in this in this scene, Beth, we assume l- loses her virginity to this schmuck, right. Um, right. and and is it which is a hilarious scene because they're both high and she's like right. how much longer she's like how much yeah. longer <laughs> it's super I, awkward and super awkward just like you know as as one's first time is every everyone's uh, first time is awkward maybe not exactly waterbed both sides no. are high awkward but you get it i can't i don't i've never had a waterbed but I imagine even sleeping in a waterbed has to be awkward i don't understand waterbeds in general if you own a waterbed anyone listening please right into the show and we would love that feedback on said water water right. bed. We'd like to get as um, detailed sleep. as possible at what different experiences both sleeping and otherwise are like on water beds. Just kidding. Yes. <laughs> um, so that that whole scene transpired and I love the next scene because I actually had this written down. She wakes up, she's by herself alone in this house and she, there's a note and a, and a, are we calling it a, a, a joint, a doobie, um, um, a, a pre-roll, if you will, was waiting for her there on the fridge. And they said, we're going to go see a movie in Cincinnati. And I was like, that's got to be far away. I was like, how far away is Cincinnati? And it's 1.5 hours. So that is quite a long distance to go see a movie. But maybe there were no movie theaters in Lexington, Kentucky in 66. Um, but yeah, it was. It was a great scene, and but my I actually missed my favorite part of the scene, which is she called her mom. Yeah, yeah. And her mom, I wrote it down. She goes, you know, uh, she's like, "Are you with a boy or whatever?" And then um, she and she goes, "Be careful of what you smoke." Mm-hmm. I love, that. <laughs> I love it. It was just, it was just like her mom knows. Her mom knows yeah, yeah. what's up. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it was, it was fantastical. So it was a fascinating scene. I thought that they characterized, you know, this experience fairly well. It wasn't overly sexualized. I mean. Um, yep. it was, there was no, there was no nudity. There was no nudity. There was no, you know, and that's kind of an overarching theme of w- what the writing and I'll say directing of the show has been about and continues to be mm-hmm. is you can say things without saying them. You can say things mm-hmm. with looks you can describe and imply without being overtly direct. Right. I mean, I think there's a lot of things left to you reaching a conclusion in a lot, in a lot of, both characters and just kind of the premise of the show. Right. So that's kind of what they did. 
you know, there's not, they don't need to go over the top and get graphic to imply what goes on. And um, I only want to add one more thing before we move on from the speaking Russian topic in our schmuck, because um, I made a note of that, not just my experience, you know, speaking Russian and spending time in Russia, but also that, again, it was a a direct sort of reference to Beth Harmon's character being sort of based around Bobby Fischer, because for those who don't know, Bobby Fischer also learned Russian, and it was well documented that he wanted to speak Russian because he was confident that the Russians and the Soviets were talking about him and cheating at tournaments because they could tell each other things that, you know, obviously him being the outside American would not understand. So, um, and then later on in this episode, we know we had the elevator scene, which we'll get into in terms of things said about Beth Harmon. So I just, for the you know, doing my job, bringing the chess references and what what fictional slash factual storylines are we following? That was, again, another thing that um, could be very comparable to how Americans felt during the battle against the Soviet Union in the Cold War chess days. So anyway, sorry, now we gotcha. can move forward. Oh, and I will say one more thing on on this entire like learning Russian, the schmuck that I'm going to call to have no name. Yeah. He said he wanted to learn Russian because he wanted to read the original Dost- Dostoevsky yeah, um, yeah. in Russian. I didn't know who that author was, and then I looked said person up on Wikipedia, and that's the author of Crime and Punishment and a bunch of other novels, but this would be like the one thing where a lot of times in – Heather and I were discussing this. When you're watching television right, and movies, they have a lot of facts. Like even Heather, she was saying up until a point, we didn't actually know if Beth was in America or still in Paris like for a little bit of time until she got adopted. You'd really have to pay attention to – um, like, you know, the newspaper or whatever, and that flashes really quick in front of you or some of the dialogue right. that they say. Right. So you kind of have to pay attention to some of that where this character references this author. I'm like, I don't know who that author is. Or I don't know. I don't read books, you know? Um, yeah, and sure. and that, yeah. fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I was laughing about the I don't read books. And yeah, when I, when I first heard i i quickly my brain was wrapped up in their discussion about communism and capitalism and mm-hmm. i realized I, monopoly. I admit the fir- yeah monopoly and the first time through i admit i was like i kind of didn't care who the author was because i was like you know I, they're probably just talking about communist manifesto or karl marx or something but then, no you're right that was a good look up a little more a little more subtle than than that but obviously again you've got this random american schmuck right learning russian during that time as another way to rebel against the capitalistic, oppressive American culture, right? In his eyes. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Yeah. All good. All good. Hippie love. Let's go. And I love that they left her alone. And then she just embraced that, by the way. And yeah. again, one of my favorite scenes is Beth in her element, you know, exploring freedom, what it means to kind of be alone in your house, doing whatever you want. She's like drinking tons, dancing tons, just like being herself. And that was a cool sort of inside view of how Beth's mind is working in this time as a 17 year old going on, like exploring some freedom again, talking to the era where freedom and expressing yourself was at a forefront. So I thought that was kind of cool uh, in general. Yeah. 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 And it's something we didn't talk much about. We'll get into it more in this episode, given where it goes, but in our last uh, breakdown, there was a lot of chess and we, we talked a lot about the travel and, and your undiscovered nuggets of, you know, flight patterns and in, in during the during the 60s in the US. Um, but uh, there was all it was also one of the things that happened in that episode was the first time that her mother had openly offered her an alcoholic beverage, if you remember, when mm, they were in the yes. hotel room. And in episode three, and she kind of said, Hey, you want a beer, right? And and then in this episode, that kind of goes full fledged, you know, she's really, you know, pushing those rebellious uh, boundaries, which I don't even know if like drinking alcohol itself 
then was as frowned upon for those underage as, as it is now, but also it doesn't mean it wasn't it wasn't illegal. It was. And also to that level of alcohol consumption was just early signs that, you know, the way they do a good job of describing best character, like she's a genius and she's troubled, right? She's got anger issues. She's got issues who wouldn't, you know, given where she's been from. Right. And so sometimes when she lets it all out, you know, the inner, you know, the unsettled in kind of inner kind of hurt child or rebellious person in her wants to wants to binge and see what her limits are and, and really express herself with, you know, drinking and dancing and just see where things go, you know? And then she graduated high school. It's all done. She's done. Yay. Yeah. Um, and that was cool. I love, I love Beth's uh, mom in this scene because she's like the only one clapping. So exciting, excited. And yeah, that's yeah. over, but we get through, we, we start to get closer to chess. Um, there's a little bit less chess, but more exciting chess in a weird way. The second time I watched it, but I did need to ask you. So we learned that there's like three big matches, yeah. Mexico city, something else. And then they're going the to champ- Paris. The U.S. championship. She mentions. U.S. Championship, and then they're going to Paris for the Remy Vallon. What is right. this? So, as far as I know, that name is actually made up. Um, I, I didn't actually look that up, but um, Danny's got to Google. Please hold everybody. Um, it's so funny as you start to type it. There's so many. Um, the uh, the Google autocompletes based on based on like the uh the queen's gambit are just hilarious right because so many people are like looking into this stuff right now um but the uh okay i'll I'll put it this way what i took out of it as most relevant is every one of those landmark cities were indeed homes of elite and regular chess events right yeah so i that name is not a name of a famous chess tournament and i'm I could have just said that, but I was Googling here to make sure I was right. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right. It, but but Paris was was home regularly to elite events, as was Mexico City um, and as was Moscow. And so they definitely nail like the landmark cities. And that's kind of what I took out of it. Um, she Yeah, she mentions the U.S. championship, which is important because, you know, that's pretty much the whole subject of our next episode. We'll get into it. Episode five when it's there. But yeah, so um, yeah, I mean, as far as like just getting the landmarks correct the city i'm gonna read here as you respond to that but i'm pretty sure that there was no name actually um the what you even said there because i know chess databases and there was no 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 event with players playing from that name yeah it was a fascinating scene because we we do learn right now that she's about to go to two international tournaments right which i think is very impressive 17 years old going to mexico city for the international but then it's also fascinating because ms wheatley gets really excited for paris but not so excited for Mexico city, even though we learn that she's about to be really excited. But like, I, I get, I know that Mexico is the South of our border. Right. And it's not that far, but it's also very far from Lexington, Kentucky. Like when I grew up in Ohio, I could never imagine going to Mexico. It's like so far away and they probably travel a similar distance. It's a little bit shorter to go to Mexico city than it is to Paris, but it's not that much different of a, flight to be honest with you um because it's very far away to some extent but i thought it was fascinating because she's been talking about international cha- travel and like mexico city is international international right it's an international tournament so well, I that was yeah good. and i felt like maybe that was a weird way they set up to i have a couple not no not issues i don't have the right to have issues but there were a couple of things about like the care the way they handled like the the mom's sort of mm-hmm. like character in the episode that were a little questioning to me yeah like 
you would think the butterflies would have hit when he when she mentions Mexico City based on what ends up happening with, you know, their trip to Mexico, Mexico City and her long lost kind of, uh, you know, pen pal lover. Right. And, yeah, Manuel. and so Manuel. Um, so, yeah, it was just odd there. Right. And and then the way um, the character develops later on, we won't spoiler this podcast. We'll get to it. But that I agree with you. That was odd. I think you could also argue that Paris is just Paris is a sexy city. Right. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. I've never been to Paris. Uh, one of oh. the European cities I've never been to. I know it's amazing, but we know what Paris represents in regards to like just the way people talk about Paris, right? Mm-hmm. Paris, France, the France, lover Paris, city, Paris, mm-hmm. the love, the, the lover city. So, mm-hmm. so I guess I guess we can give it a pass on that. But yeah, it, it does get surprising the fact that they right after the scene they hop on a plane, they're headed to Mexico City, and I'll I'll let you take it from there in terms of the 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 bombshell that the mom drops about Manuel. Yeah. It, well, I will say this is they get on a plane. And it looks, you don't get to see any details about the plane. Because you know I like to investigate a plane, Danny. Yeah, oh, I know Um, how you investigate planes. It looks like a very small jet, by the way, which would make no sense going from Lexington, Kentucky, all the way down to Mexico, unless this was a stopover. But then it was also weird because it looked like a smaller jet, and they only showed it from behind. But it was a three-by-three seater, which wouldn't make any sense for a smaller jet, which would be a two-by-two seater. But the whole idea doesn't make any sense. So I'm a little bit confused there. But yeah, she she tells Beth that she's had this long pen pal Manuel that she's written back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he's going to pick him up from the airport <laughs> randomly. Never met this dude, but totally going to do it. Um, and, you know, you know, it's, whatever, that's fine. It's, uh, it's fat. I mean, in, but on the plane, right, um, we... We one continue to see um, more alcohol consumption throughout the entire episode, which leads up yep. to some some tragedy um, later on. But later on, um, but yeah, you know, Manuel's there, long last pen pal, never met, and and at some point, as you know, Mrs. Wheatley gives Beth this really nice watch, the Belova, and it's a very expensive watch. Like today's, it'd be a few hundred dollars, which is not a cheap watch, and. I think my overarching theme of this episode up to a point, which was I really felt that the bond between Mrs. Wheatley and Beth was really strong. Like even in these scenes, like Beth is becoming, she's still annoyed at some point about it, but there's some strengths like, you know, um, she engraved this watch and it was really, really nice. Like, you know, her mom really wants to like watch more chess has really been getting more involved in it. Um, and there's some scenes later where Mrs. Wheatley's playing the piano and it's like, that's like really like, you know, connected. I felt really connected to her. And then it was, um, it was, it was a kind of a weird scene and, and, um, you know, they're in Mexico city, whatever. It doesn't matter yeah. at this point. I mean, I, I, I agree. And again, and I, I said how Shauna felt after the episode based on the tragedy we're getting to, but I'll just say like, of all the episodes in the show, I mean, you know, we're we're breaking this down. We're big fans, all that. I guess we're allowed to be critics. Like this episode was was my least favorite. I'll say that, mm. and, and I'm going to say that again, not spoiling for you, but in an encouraging way. Episodes five, six, and seven really won me back. Like I was very happy with uh, where the show went and the ultimate kind of like you know whatever the experiences we get. So I'm not I'm not going to say any more than that. But I just want to say like. Of the first three and then the fourth ep- video, uh, video, sorry, uh, whatever episode, episode, right? Um, you know, being middle game, I it was just, yeah, I agree. Like, I didn't really like how it ended, we'll get to, and I felt like some, yeah, some of the 
some of the dialogue there. It wasn't just the chess player in me that was upset. This is probably the episode of all seven that has the least amount of chess. Um, we're going to definitely get back into some more, a lot of fun in the next episode. But so I don't even know what to say. I mean, the things you were saying, I'll just say I agree. I thought they were odd. I, I do have some notes about, um, you know, where we at here. Um, I did make a note about the plane. I just wanted to say that I really like the line where right before she talks to Beth about Manuel and her excitement about Mexico City, she kind of says, what are you reading? And she says, pawn structure analysis. And she says, well, that sounds exciting sarcastically. And Beth goes, it is. I just wanted to say <laughs> I loved that dialogue as someone who also has always found pawn structures fascinating. And I've even been made fun of that by my my peers and things like that, like Danny Wrench's obsession with pawn structure. I have tons of videos on chess.com. Like literally, if you Google like pawn structure chess videos like Danny Wrench, I have a ton. I have like, and and I've always been big about the concept of seeing the forest through the trees in chess because what mm. defines the best players at the high levels is always pawn play because they're the only pieces you can't move back. And what that means is every every weakness and every high level like concept of chess is based around positional you know, strategy, which is exposing what the pawns have given you. And it's and anyway, so I just love that because they continue to develop like what this young, aggressive American needs to jump level is pawn structure chess. She says it is fascinating. And I just had to say, I love that won my heart, that line right there. Love it. It is, um, it is good yeah. too, because, you know, when they get to the first match, which I want to, there's, there's, they, they blend a lot of elements in between chess when things are happening, but like fascinating when we get to the very first um, match with Octavio, they say, cause a lot of this is all done. They say it in Spanish and it's translated and Heather was like, give this Spanish is on point by the way. Right. Um, you know, they say like she wins like basically all, all pawns, like it's all pawns. So like she came off of reading this book about pawn structures to basically destroying Octavio with all pawns, but right. Mike and Matt show up, man. Mike and Matt stars of this episode, by the way, middle game, which funnily enough, this is the middle episode in the series. And we all know that the middle game, sometimes isn't all that exciting, which may be why this episode isn't all that exciting. Not to say that all middle games aren't exciting. Danny, I'm just saying you're halfway through a match and you're like, okay, get it over with. I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I do. I did make a note here that Mike and Matt's appearance is a bit odd. And the reason I said that is because it's, it's almost like they had to have someone for Beth to dialogue her thought process with right on yeah. like in the lobby you know, before the chess games, like there's the scene where she comes out of the elevator right before the game with Borgog will get to and Mike and Matt just like walk up behind her kind of like she has someone there with her, which I, I thought was cool. It's totally movie magic and the drama, but I can say like in an elite event in Mexico City or Havana, Cuba, like where some of the events south of the border in the U.S. took place during that time, Buenos Aires, like they they would not have been there. I will say that Mike and Matt did not belong in Mexico City. <laughs> but, yeah, even, they even they say were like. They're like, oh, yeah. like he like, you know, Matt loves a beating or whatever. Mike, right. everyone was playing because only one of them was playing. Um, and, and it's crazy because of this very first match, by the way, which is against Octavio Marenko, who she destroys. Um, he is an international grandmaster, not to be confused with an international master. And I had to yeah, go back. I, I made that I made that note that she that they use the term. Right. And, and I love that because you and I had just spent so much time talking about it um in the last episode that the actual title of grandmaster is international grandmaster and she says it there to add the correct emphasis on the wrong syllable i loved it now but how would she get paired up against an international grandmaster because in this tournament is it more of the traditional tournament like you were talking about where like the one of the top players would play one of the lower players so this it, that note is exactly why Mike and Matt didn't belong there because oh, okay. she was invited to play in Mexico city. 
Mm. And an invitational would would imply that people are being brought in from all over the world, like what happens in, in Paris later on in the show, like what eventually happens in Moscow in the end, like international invitationals would be for grandmasters or up and coming up and comer talented players, right? That is what's about to take place in Tata Steel and Viking Z, which is in the Netherlands. It's it's an event that we've partnered with and broadcast for the for last five years or so. Um, and it's one of the longest lasting kind of elite events. Um, and so it the field is a combination of Magnus Carlson, Anish Giri, uh, you know, top world's elite, and then a few um like players who are Dutch, right? Local to the organizers who don't necessarily belong in that level, but they're given the opportunity, right? This is a very typical sort of way that these elite events will run. Um, an organizer who's engaging and whether it's for local philanthropic reasons, whether there's a brand being promoted, whatever it is, that's exactly how it would be. So even Beth Harmon's invite is a bit of a stretch to be in an event with Borgov, right? This guy's the world champion and number one, and we know that while she did just tie for the U.S. championship, at this point, she's still talking about the international and grandmaster titles like like there's something she aspires to be. Right. So I, I kind of made a note of this because we can assume at this point, Beth Harmon is not an IM or a GM yet, meaning she's mm -hmm. not an international or grandmaster. And I think I'm right about that. And if that's the case, that part of it is just odd. You would never see a, a young, up and coming, talented American in an event with the reigning world champion. But we're sort of looking past that because, you know, we're sort of seeing that Beth Harmon is not your normal prodigy. She's like a Bobby Fischer and she's being given this opportunity. Um, she would be playing Grandmasters and International Grandmasters, but Mike and Matt would not be at an event like this. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I could see them going just to like watch, but it doesn't make sense for them to be playing in, in any regards. Um, in it. Now, I, I want to say before we move on to this, because while we've been chatting here, I've been listening to everywhere and paying attention, but just doing my own research. I'm I'm actually so I, I took for granted how important Mexico City is because Mexico City um, and in future events did did host major events. And eventually you have the Linares tournament, which was played in both Spain and Mexico, like a, a rare tournament, a super tournament throughout the 90s that um, that like basically had players travel from like Spain to Mexico. Very cool. But, mm. but actually at this time, like the biggest events that were South of the border were in Havana, Cuba, which were homages um, to the great and uh, the great and late Jose Raul Capablanca. Um, you had uh, Mar del Plata, which uh, of course is uh, in, in Argentina. Um, and so there, there actually weren't events in Mexico city in the sixties. There were events in South America Havana being the most regular one. And so I looking at the consistency of the schedule, I feel like Havana, uh, there was also Buenos Aires in 64, which carries in Petrosian one. So I'm looking at it and remembering like Mexico City, while it did eventually become a city of some major events at this time was not totally would not be totally fair to say that. Uh, likewise, with with Paris, actually, again, Paris held some major events, but you were more likely to see events not just in Moscow, but in Amsterdam. Um you know, I was looking at in Sochi, uh, of course, Russia or, or Siberia. Um, you know, anyway, it's interesting. Sorry, I just dropped there. So I, I feel like they nailed it, but I guess I gave them. I mean, Wyke and Z actually started in 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 '68, which is now one of the longest running, um, you know, basically elite events in the world. And again, it's coming up in January. But but again, I guess I guess Perry would be a little bit of a stretch. So I, I gave them the benefit of the doubt there. I think it's fine. They do hit the nail on the head overall, but, but there's no actual 
there was no super tournament in Paris in the 60s. And um, even though there were many in the surrounding European cities, Eastern Europe and that stuff. So anyway, just have to say that I got to correct myself when I'm wrong. There you go. Well, and, you know, it's fascinating because also like, you know, the Aztec Palace where they where this was taking place in in Mexico City, like doesn't exist, obviously. Like it's a, it's a show, right? Not everything exists here. But the I will say the, the hotel was beautiful. And that hotel is actually a real hotel is in Berlin. So that's a fun okay. fact. Um, there you go. Fun fact. All right. So look at us. We're, man, we're learning so much together. A few things here, Danny. Um, Mike, Matt, her mom really push her to relax the day before the match. She's cramming. I have it written down on here. Danny, what do you do the day before a match? Do you relax? Do you cram? Are you, you know, polishing your, your um, openings, your end games? What are you doing? So love that you asked that question. It was also one of the things that I noted. I felt like the dialogue that took place between the mom and Beth was actually, was actually kind of cool. And I had, I had both like applause, little golf clap going on watching. And then also some, you know, some like, huh, that's interesting. But so where does that premise start? Right. It starts with the mom saying, you know, you don't always have to work so hard. And she's like, I'm playing these guys. If I lose, right, that's coming out of our capital, right? So she's kind of threatening the mom where she lives, which is in, her, in the pocketbook, right? Like, hey, let's not mm-hmm. forget I'm the paycheck here. And then she's like, yeah, but I've seen that you, and they call you an intuitive player, do they not, right? And and Beth is like, yeah, right? But an intuitive player, while um, kind of an interesting way to refer to it, is definitely something that y- you would refer to different people as. Like someone who typically... Uh, trust their intuition and isn't isn't bringing a ton of technical theoretical knowledge at least at that stage how could she she's 17 years old um, and she was kind of trying to say like look from what I understand about you Beth you're at your best when you're just relaxed when you're trusting yourself you're mm-hmm. trusting your intuition and let's not overthink this so I I think that all that was actually very good and interesting advice and we end up finding out as Beth um kind of starts wandering the city. She eventually runs into Borgoff and his wife and, and their family at the at the zoo, right, later on. Mm-hmm. So we see that Borgoff as well is enjoying kind of the rest day and not overbooking or overcramming in the books. Um, but also I felt like there was a little bit of a, um, you know, of a, of a thing that says like, hey, if you relax, that's when you're at your best. And I actually made notes of the, you know, all the all the quotes I have, you know, of like, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get, right? Like Lee Trevino and golf, right? I think that he mm-hmm. said it for, there, there are all kinds of phrases that, that like imply you work hard so that when you're in front of, you know, the, the pressure filled moment, whether that's on camera or at the board, you can relax, right? And trust yourself, right? So I don't really agree that like walking away from what you know you need to focus on is an ultimate recipe towards success, right? I mean, working hard allows you to relax sometimes because you feel like you put in your time. Now you can trust your instincts and let it happen, right? So, and there's a lot of things about that. And then you see that the mom, the mom is, one of the themes throughout this is the mom is consistently what I would say, like a slippery slope almost. Mm. Like, I don't want to say the mom is a bad influence, but if we go back to like episode three, like giving alcohol and then here, like she kind of gets Beth to kind of, lose loosen up but also lose her focus a little bit and we know that beth then kind of engages in a few too many alcoholic beverages as she's wandering mexico city right Mm -hmm. so i so i don't even know like i both i both applauded the advice i think that a good coach will get get someone to appreciate there's nothing you could study this day that's going to win you the match tomorrow i agree with that and you should never like convince yourself that you're going to change the game plan a day before a match and be at your best for sure you have to just trust what's gotten you there. 
But at the same time, like, I don't always know that the mom is the best influence on Beth and her and her ambitions to just do what she knows she needs to do, which is become a better technical player so she yeah. can compete with these guys. Yeah, anyway, and you know, sorry. And her mom and her mom doesn't know who she's up against, right? She doesn't understand that she's about to go up against a, a grandmaster and against Borgov. Like she understands that, but I don't think she understands the the difficulty and the talent of these players. Even though Beth has been crushing it, she sort of was like, "Hey, you're in, invincible. Like you can, you're the best out there. You're you know, but but she's not the best out there, and it's it's clear, right? And she has a lot to learn. And and you know, we see this flashback, by the way, too, which I thought was very of the moment from Mr. Scheibel. He fl- there's a brand new scene out of nowhere where he's like, you know, you're two sides of the coin. There's much anger in you. A Star Wars yeah, yeah. reference. It, I don't I know. know. I love that. I had the same <laughs> note. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, and he goes, you know, your time, it's, you know, this is your time in the sun, but for how long? Right. And we actually see that later on in one of the other matches, sort of talking about a younger prodigy from Russia. But this flashback is very, she continuously gets flashbacks of Mr. Scheibel, um, in many of the episodes here, but yeah, I love that. Like there's, there's much anger in you, you know, it's two sides of the coin. Like, you know, you, well, you may be basking in the sun right now, but for how long? Right. And, and to me that is like, Hey, you really need to focus clamper down, but also realize that while you may be on this huge incline forever, people, yeah. you're not there forever. Right. Like right. for however good right now, the players of, of Magnus Carlsen and uh, Hikaru Nakamura are like 30 years from now, they still may be on top, right? But there's going to be new younger players, which we see in this episode, by the way, that maybe it'd be taking your, your spotlight from you. Well, there's a lot of dialogue there and it actually happens with the young uh, Griev as we'll discuss. And so I want to save my, my zinger for what I feel the overarching message and theme Mm. of the show was for later, because you already kind of asked that when the mother, Talk, when when Beth calls her mom before her, you know, her big, you know, the everything that happens there that night and, you know, with mm. the boy and everything and I, the schmuck, sorry, not the boy. Um, I think there's an overarching theme to this middle game episode that is cemented by how it ends and by um, some of the conversations that took place here with the mom pushing her to to do more than just study before a big chess tournament and stuff. And, and so on that note, I actually do feel like the episode delivered. And that was kind of my big zinger takeaway at the end. I was mm. like, here's what the message is. He's trying to, that the writing is trying to say, the director is trying to say, and that, that it's setting the tone for the back half of Beth, of, of this show, not Beth's life, because, yeah. you know, she's still so young, but so I I'm with you. And I think, I think it's, it's both like, really good and i think because of the way they end it i'm going to give them like you know the big thumbs up at the end because mm. i feel like the message gets delivered but yeah there's also some just kind of interesting dialogue there like who knows what you know what the best really would have been for beth Harmon at that age so yeah i think so. she yeah the overarching for me would be sometimes you gotta stop and smell the roses right yeah exactly um, all right so let's get really quick out of here first match like we said octavio marenko um finished in 31 moves with a mating net at the end um, now, here's a, f- a funny part that I, I wrote down for this is she says, you know, that there's, you know, the langer- language barrier, right? They don't speak the same language. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought this was, well, I wanted to ask you about that in your matches. Um, but also the very first match, Marenko comes over and like whispers in her ear and then sits down. It's like very weird. Yeah. Did you catch that? Yeah, it was odd and kind of out of place. It could happen, but it was... I don't know. I, I I didn't. All I noted about both that and um, kind of the way they describe that she beats him with pawns, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just I, I don't know. I mean, I think they're just it's just adding the chess to it, adding to the you know the development of you know 
her character and that again she's consistently socially a little bit feeling feeling a little socially out of place that's how she feels a lot of the time now she's out of place because she doesn't speak the language of these guys um and then this guy whispers in her ear kind of like making her maybe feel further isolated maybe it was something Mm -hmm. sort of sexy sexist you don't know right it was awkward and again they don't really get into it other than she destroys him with a lot of pawns regardless. You know? Yeah, we, we do talk about that, right? I mean, in this time era, you know, Heather was asking me a lot about this. And while there were, you know, female chess players, like in the, the show, we see that it's, it's a minority and um, especially in this time era. And and you're right. I mean, would that, would Marenko have done that to um, Borgov? I can guarantee you not, right? No, like it, no. it's, it's a, yeah. again, I think her being who she is, a young woman coming up in chess in this era, there is some, there is some disrespect. There's not the respect yep. given yet that she's yep. earning through this. Um, but we then see, uh, uh, we, we learn a queen's gambit decline, destroying Diedrich from, uh, uh, Austria. And this is one of my favorite. Um, there's a lot of um, times when Beth destroys, um, chess players, but this was right. a good one because he looked shook. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Like, that was really funny. It's like his face. It's like he's seen a ghost and then been slapped by the ghost. (laughs) So that was great. And I think that's kind of I I almost rolled the first one with, you know, regardless of the kind of the sexist ear whispering. Why would you do that to your opponent? That's not a thing. I've never had someone come up and whisper in my ear before they sit down in front of me. You know, anyway. So, yeah, Um, let's let's have a good game, Danny. (laughs) What what are you doing? Not okay. Um, So. Yeah, I just kind of wrapped them both into like she's setting the tone for her prowess right in the event, and now she beats uh, Diedrich and beats Diedrich nicely. And yes, he's, he's he will Diedrich will never be the same after that. Game. That's <laughs> oh, what no. like his career went downhill. That's what happened. He walks away with his tail between his legs. He just like leaves the table, and it's go time. Yeah. Uh, no, let's get we get to some chess finally because those first two games we don't see anything. There's nothing to map on it, um, and we get right into the next match, which is fantastic. By the way, this is one of, um, very fascinating games of chess because Beth is put in, um, a new position against Georgie Gerev from Russia, a young Russian kid. Who's Gryev. Uh, it's Gryev. Gir, Gryev. Yeah. I don't know. Say it. Gryev. Okay. Gryev. Perfect. Georgie Gryev. Georgie Gryev. Uh, so this is great. Um, as he does speak some English, so there he's, he's able to you know talk or whatever. This may be the, the first time she's played a younger opponent. Right. And this is a fascinating match, by the way. Uh, we get a uh, Sicilian, of course, an open Sicilian on the board right away. In the show notes, by the way, for this and the Borgov match, we have the openings and the end game for both of these, so you can follow along at home. I personally did the openings... Um, for both of these games. Uh, and so I love can, reviewing them, especially because you consistently do an amazing job because they skip moves and I have to figure it out yeah. on my mind. And I think, yeah, I and no, and you're, and again, you're not a professional chess player, James, but you are acting like one on this show. Young man, you are crushing it. Uh, <laughs> and at least this is a pretty standard opening. We've seen this uh, many a times from Beth. We see, uh, we, you know, we see a Sicilian open, Yep. Uh, Sicilian defense. Well, and, and she's white in this one. She also mm-hmm. plays the Sicilian, as we know, as black many times. But yes, you're right. Um, so yeah, she's white in this case, and uh, you nailed the opening. Yep. Yeah, she takes her knights out, and then we see a French variation with him taking uh, knight knight e3, 
Knight E3, Knight King 3, what is it? Something? Well, Pawn, so- Pawn King E3 6. <laughs> pawn is pawn to king four. We get pawn to queen's bishop four. That's a Sicilian. This is e4, c5. And then after knight of three, we get e6. So that's pawn to king three it, or pawn to king six, depending on the board orientation. Um, and after d4, we'll just go with what the algebraic is. Yeah, we have this. So it's called a French variation early with e6, but this is actually a, a yeah, and, and then they get it right if you get to move four. They call it a Taimanov. So this is a Paulson or Taimanov kind of Sicilian, and that's defined by the E6 structure versus on move two, for example, if you back up our, our eager chess listeners, the move knight to C6, we will see Beth plays later on when she's black against Borgov. So um, on move two, she plays knight to queen's bishop three or knight to C6 later. Um, also d6 pawn to queen three or d6 is a move that's very popular so so e6 is called a french variation at first and that's because our eco is designed to really map out everything under the sun but really once d4 takes takes knight c6 is played we are in a Taimanov uh sicilian and uh and, and the main line that's played here um i believe this actually is a famous game but i didn't look it up ahead of time but we've got a sheveningen structure once you have pawns on e6 and d6 for black, if you go to like move six after knight f6 for black, this mm-hmm. is a Sheveningen pawn structure. Um, Sheveningen is also a name of a tournament style where all play all um, in like a kind of a team format. Well, you know, I don't know if that ever actually comes up in this show, but um, Sheveningen here is the opening. She plays a very aggressive line with f4, uh, the Matanovic attack, which is what f4 is. Um you can play so many of the moves there. I do not play the F4 ideas. Uh, and he plays... Th- this is a little bit odd in terms of... I actually think this isn't exactly the move order. And, and I'm sorry, buddy. I just realized going through it, you missed one move. That's okay. I love you. Hey, don't get mad. Don't get mad. Okay. <laughs> I was the close. I knew, I knew I was yeah. close. I mean, I got the board to where it was, but I might have been off after this the, one. the only thing you miss is bishop e7 first before knight g4 because mm. if knight g4 is played on move seven there she would take it with her queen still on d1 so in, in the in the game actually bishop e7 is played then queen d2 from beth then knight g4 from um from our buddy um get it uh good 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 um and then uh so after after queen to d2 um knight g4 you get bishop e2 e5 played by black knight f3 and then the capture on e3 and the capture on f4 so the final position is just like you had except there's moves bishop e7 and bishop e2 thrown in for both white and uh, black there oh i see got it that makes sense yes i was very close in in it we'll put the final updated one as we we walk through we always do that because this is fun as danny gives me um it's hard because you know if you are really into this chess, you're trying to watch it and they, they skip random moves. And, and at the same time, I wish that chess.com would also put the one through eight reversed on the other side. That would also be very helpful. Um, okay. That's good the, to know actually of the board, because you know, when you say, for example, if I have white on the bottom, right. You know, and you're like, Oh, you know, pawn, you know, E three or whatever, it's actually six on the board, right? It's, it's, you know, maybe I can tap on it or something, change it. But it's like, you know, when you're in the Explorer, you can only see one and you're shifting in your mind. But, um, th- this was a, a, a fascinating match in general. And I think that that good was also fascinating, right? He's super young. He's very respectful. He's like, you know, it's an honor. It's an honor. Miss, Miss Hunterman, right? He's like yeah, so yeah. excited to play against her. 
the 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 play is fast by the way um, yeah no they yeah they play super fast i made a note of that here which was interesting it was like a young guy kind of like trying to prove himself to beth Harmon mm-hmm. there um yeah go ahead and then we fast forward five hours danny <laughs> yeah <laughs> and um, um this is fascinating because this had never happened um, Gerev, he goes, you know, you know, we've played for five hours. We should adjourn. And I was like, holy crap. Like I've never, I have no idea what's about to happen. And, um, they have to mark, she has to seal a move. Danny, Mark, yep. c- explain one, by the way, this is when Heather stopped and she said, wait a second, how did it go five hours? Because I thought you told me that Danny discussed two, two hours, 40 moves, right? Yeah. But, but it's two hours for both sides. So that's that's already four hours total possible. But right? they're at five hours. Yeah. And they're playing past the 40 move mark, which means they've been given additional allotted time. So a very, very okay. typical time uh, time control is two hours for each side to start. So that's already four hours of potential total time. And you have to make 40 moves total, sometimes 50 moves, mm-hmm. uh, depending on the time control. 50 moves was sometimes more standard then, but you got 40 or 50 moves within those first two hours. But if you reach that, you reach the the 40 or 50 move mark, each side gets sometimes either an additional half an hour each, or sometimes an additional full hour. Oh. Um, tournaments in the 90s, when I was up and coming and, and in the early 2000s, it was the, the most time... T- popular time control in the world was 40 moves in two hours sudden death 60 so that mm. meant a total possible game of six hours long wow. but that was because in the sudden death era our era there were no adjournments so back then a more typical time control would be 40 or 50 moves in two hours plus 60 minutes for the remaining moves and at any moment someone can adjourn the game well what so, happens okay hold on. before you go to adjournment what happens if you don't reach the amount of moves required is it a draw does someone you lose you lose on time you lose on time so 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 sometimes in fact the most common uh amount of time a game would last is probably roughly a three and a half to three hour and 45 minute mark because most games someone would win right around move 40 so you know one side's used 90 minutes and they're leading the other side has used almost all of their four hours because they've been getting outplayed. So they typically are taking a little more time to think about it. They're under time pressure and our game is ending on move 37, 38, right? This Mm. is a very, very common pace of a game and the type of result you would see. Uh, This game is, you know, and what they're depicting is a very accurate, very long struggle, right? Mm. This is a, this is a, um, a really deep game. Um, And, uh, I believe we have it noted in our thing as um, I think it was Yekovenko Stellwagen. Um, yes. Yes. Um, so Yekovenko Stellwagen is a is an actual game, um, and uh, that's the position they are referencing with the eventual tactic that we see Beth on Cork after adjournment with this H five move. But I don't want to skip past any of your questions about adjournment before we get into that. But yeah. How do, how does this adjournment work? There's some stipulations here. This is yeah. fascinating because the it just stops at the end of it. He's you know they they kind of agree to stop play for the day, and I, at least what my mind is this. Okay, this is what how I explained a German to Heather, and then you can correct me because she's like, like what, what's about happening here? And I said I think what happened here is they've agreed that they're you're going to take a break, go to the next day because they played for so long. They're still within their time limits. They've played enough moves. Mm-hmm. Beth has to decide what her next move is so she cannot 
like study the board and decide and something find out different. the best move yeah exactly that's a hundred percent correct so you see him the the tournament director come over the arbiter and she has to seal her move um mm-hmm. so the only so i had a couple of notes that are more like you know bring in my how realistic is the chess of this so first of all we explain the time controls totally legit we explained that a game would be adjourned after about the five hour mark this is also totally legit the only thing that's not legit is that the young guy is kind of like hey you know, we've been playing for five hours. Can we call it a break? Like that's mm-hmm. that's not a normal thing you would ever say <laughs> to your yeah. opponent. And um, although he's just like a kid and he's exhausted. Um, and then also the fact that he played the move uh, King H8 so quickly is actually the move that that in theory kind of loses the game. Now, now black is black is in big trouble, but Bishop to G7 blocking the check by the Rook would have not allow, allowed the H5 tactic that, that Beth mm. Norman plays. Um, now white is still in control because of, uh, the rook on the seventh rank, but it, the game would have been much more dynamic and without turning this into a long kind of, you know, crazy, crazy chess lecture, but King H8 as is actually kind of accurate and, and both, um, it needs to be noted King H8 played out of exhaustion by our young 13 year old hmm. is the move that kind of loses the game in a forcing manner when Beth finds and seals the move H5 at the break. Yeah, um, she she um she put he puts he puts his king in the corner. You know, yeah, I'm just not saying that's the best move, but uh, this is fascinating to me because Beth knows her next move. He doesn't know her move, but th- what this allows Beth to do is study the chessboard. You know, she's annoyed. I think at the end of this day, she's super annoyed. He goes and he asks about like drive-in movies and Elvis yeah, things yeah, and yeah. all this stuff. It's super cute. And Beth is just not having anything to do with it because she just played chess for five hours. She's super annoyed that she hasn't crushed this kid by now, right? He's so young. And, um, you know, but I think she, one, she has the advantage, right? If we look at the chess.com analysis, this podcast brought to you by chess.com, chess.com, where you can play chess um, (laughs) online. Uh, (laughs) That's the advertisement. So she's already winning. In, in this point, according to the analysis board, she's already winning and she knows her next move, uh, which surprisingly enough, H5, this move, you can click on the show notes, brings her down in the analysis here, by the way. It brings it not 50-50, but it, she's still winning even with this move. It brings it down a little bit, but she has all night to study the board, which I think is a German is kind of crazy because whoever's about to play the next move, if they can memorize the chessboard, right, which it's on the demo board or whatever, so it's not that hard. She just stayed up all night and just like memorize and figure out everything in general, which I think is crazy. Yeah, I mean, and so what was your thought about, I want to give my thoughts about it. So what you said is like, so she plays H5, and even though it initially brings her down, I will say the longer you give the engine to think, it actually goes back up. It is a a brilliant pawn Mm. sacrifice, which is kind of why the young Griev missed it. and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume that people at this point have clicked the analysis link by James, and we're looking at the position with the Black King on H8, and go ahead and play the move pawn to H5 on the board. Yep. The whole idea is when Black takes this pawn, you would then play G6, which threatens checkmate with Rook H7 because the Bishop on D5 guards the G8 escape square for the Black King. And mm. so this pawn sack is kind of the key. and um, And there's really... There's really no way out of it. Eventually, what happens here is is Black has to part ways with a piece, and and the game is the game is over. So H five actually um, 
even though initially computers often sort of go like, no, don't give up material. But if you give it time to think, it's actually the brilliant tactic that was played in the in the real life game um, uh, between Yakovenko and and Stellwagen. Um, so and then the way that she kind of acts, right, because that's what that's what we're talking about now. Right. So she plays yeah. H5. He knows he's in trouble, but she basically is playing the game in her head the rest of the time, getting up from the board, kind of wandering around and only coming back to the board when she hears him made a move and she hears that big wooden clock tick. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So how realistic did that seem to you as a non chess player before I respond? I mean, it was, it was sassy and I loved it. It was great film uh, because it it really showed that Beth knew she was winning, that she was going to win. She's played out every scenario in her mind. She knew what he was going to play. However, um, if I was him, I would have been pissed. I don't know because she, there was, one point where she's like really far away looking at him. There's another point where she's like tapping her foot nonstop. I don't know if it was to get under his skin. Um, I don't think it's realistic at this level of play necessarily. I do think it is realistic that maybe after five hours or four hours, someone might get up and use the, you know, do something. But after the first move get up, I don't know. I think that that was kind of uh I think it was a tactic. And if it was a tactic, it was a very good tactic too. Okay, cool. I love that because first of all, it was sassy. It was good drama. And it clearly shows, you know, that she, you know, that she knows exactly what's going on. And this kid is kind of out of his league. Right. And now you kind of see the kid kind of squirm and he's kind of cute. Right. Kind of frustrated with her. Right. But now I'm going to say this. Not only is it all those things, which makes for good TV and good drama for someone to kind of just outplay the person. It's actually not that unrealistic. Now, oh, really? it's not the most what, what Beth did was just not the most ethical thing mm. in that um, it kind of shows like she's impatient and kind of tired of the young kid. And uh, but that does happen at tournaments where like someone is just like beating the other person and basically spends very little time at the board. And the tapping of the foot is is definitely like kind of obnoxious and unethical by Beth. It's something a young player would do, but you would like, you would never see Borgoff do. Right. But even in a real chess tournament, like that's something a young player would do actually. And like, that's something that, you know, I I didn't find the scene unrealistic in terms of chess at all. And Shauna asked me the same thing and she's been to tournaments. So she knows you're allowed to walk around and she's Mm -hmm. watched me play super long games where she can come in and observe but she was like, would someone ever do that to someone like that at an elite event? I was like, a young player, like, yes. And then they would be like quickly, like basically talked to by the old school people. It's the kind of thing like in baseball, you would get you would get a pitch thrown at you the next time you come to the plate. Yeah. Right. It's like someone like, you know, trotting a little too slowly around the bases and like bragging about the home run. And the next time you come up, like you get a pitch thrown at you. Right now, I'm not saying that's that's not good and not safe. And please stop throwing 95 mile an hour fastballs at people's heads. It's not a good thing. But but that's um, it's actually very realistic. And the fact that it kind of gets under his skin is also like a plus. You know, there is a bit of chess that I think people don't always know about that is a bit of a mind game and kind of an athletic sport in the sense of your physical presence can sometimes intimidate someone. Right. And Gary Kasparov was actually very, very well known for, for being an intimidating presence for his opponents. And, um, you know, Gary's never going to listen to this podcast, so I don't care. I mean, there's also a lot of conversation that people, you know, basically thought he was a jerk at the board and that he was Gary Kasparov was the most dominant, you know, figure throughout the eighties and into the early two thousands 
you know, many argue still the GOAT, right? A lot of people say Magnus Carlsen has not surpassed Gary in terms of the greatest of all time. And and I don't know that I disagree. Gary's Gary's dominance of his generation is still something that um just incredible, right? But but Gary was also known, like there were rumors that Gary like would kick his opponents under the table, like accidentally, mm-hmm. right? But but or not, right? Or he was always known for like making moves and like screwing the piece into the board. Like you make a move and it was gonna he like screws it in a few times and then hits the clock. Or um like staring down his opponents even on his turn. Like Gary was basically Gary was a freaking badass, right? Like at the board, and he was intimidating. And he and so again, there are players who have said that they really didn't feel like that was the ethical and correct thing to do. And there are other players like that would argue, like, look, like chess may be known as a passive sport, but it's a sport where like I'm there to dominate you and you're gonna dominate me. And I don't give a sh oh wait, I almost said the S word. I guess we're allowed to curse. It's an I mean, I don't give a bleep what you think about me. And and now at the same time. If you ever do something consistently to like bother your opponent, for example, if the young Griev had called an arbiter and said, "Will you please tell her to stop tapping her foot?" Hmm. the arbiter would surely side with Griev, like yeah. not Beth, right? It, what she was doing, if it had been called on her, would have been like, "Hey, you're being obnoxious." But very often, people will do this to you, and you won't call it on them because you don't want to show like weakness, right? So what you do is your job is to ignore them and focus through the distraction. So I really like this whole thing. And you can tell in my voice, I'm passionate to talk about it because there's a lot about like a physical, the physical presence, the physical things that take place within like a chess tournament that like don't get talked about. And I don't even think about it that much anymore because I, I, one, I got so used to it playing in those types of tournaments. And now, now I don't even, you know, I don't play in world elite events anymore, but, but that's, you know, that's not totally unrealistic and unreasonable that, that like, you know, the top, there are top players who are active now, I won't say there are reputations of some that people don't enjoy playing and more than others. Right. And there are, um, there are stories like I already was very direct about the Kasparov stories of him being a guy that was just intimidating AF and was known for doing some stuff, you know, Fisher Fisher in the, in the sixties and in his world championship match, there's a lot of famous stories. I don't know if anyone ever saw Pawn Sacrifice. Did you see Pawn Sacrifice with Toby McGuire? Oh, I know. I have not, but I'm, I've been thinking about our season three, of blunders yeah, I mean, already and i think we may do chess movie breakdowns by the way that's yeah what, that's what i've been thinking i didn't tell you oh, okay yet, well but, uh, oh sweet well no so pawn sacrifice is uh, that, i mean that'll i won't say i'll save it because i've seen it and whatever but it, when they get into the actual match that goes down between fisher and spassky which is played by toby mcguire and lev schreiber in 1972 in Reykjavik, iceland they do a fantastic job of really bringing to life the mental battleground that was taking place mm. and Fisher like demanding things and Spassky denying them and complaining about the lighting and the chairs, like this kind of stuff happened. So, all right, I digress. We'll come back. But my point is it's not that unreasonable, even if it's not the most ethical thing to do. It's mm. also something that happens more often than you would think. Gotcha. Gotcha. That, that's fast. I mean, it's a fascinating insight. And I, you know, and I think that that we actually see a little bit later, um, during the Borgov, like someone takes a photo and the arbiter goes and like shuts it down. Right. And it's similar in golf too, by the way, like golf, I'm, I was a golfer back in the day. And, you know, if you have, if you have people that are, you know, watching or doing other things like you, the arbiter will kind of come around and do stuff. Now we'll say this though, the Jekovenko, uh, Stellwagen match to get to the position in which we get to in the show notes of this match is on play 42, right? So we can, yes. I'm not going to say it took the same amount of moves. But are we looking at somewhere around 40-ish moves? And if so, 
does that even make sense for the five hour mark? I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of weird. I will say, I think, I think it can make sense in the sense of, so if we go with the time control, I said 40 moves in two hours, it's not crazy to believe that sometimes you would spend a significant amount of time, mm-hmm. like right after time control, because you get more time. So for example, very mm-hmm. commonly, you know, they've been struggling. We're both under time pressure. We've both used three hours and, you know, or an hour and 55 minutes. Like we barely make time control and move 40. Now we get this extra hour each. A lot of times people will slow down and really think through, um, you know, what the next, what the next few moves are. Um, and, um, and so again, I think, I think tit for tat, whatever, but no, I don't think it's unrealistic. And I think, I think they did a pretty good job there. Now, do you know the next move? So Beth plays H5. We don't see the board. Do you know in your mind how she beat him? If you were to walk this out. So she, she played H5. There's actually a great video by, um, Danny King, who's a friend of mine and, uh, give a shout out to his YouTube channel. He breaks down the whole, the whole Yakovenko, uh, wagon game, um, from that position, but I guess for our podcast, I'll say that, yeah, again, after after H5, it's, I don't say easily winning, but it's very straightforward. Like Black is in big trouble. And mm-hmm. again, the point is because you're getting a forced pass pawn with this pawn sack, no matter how Black takes it, the king on H8 gets in a mating net and Black has to start giving up material. Um, oh. So I think it, it goes on longer. Oh, this is the note I made. I'll say this. It goes on longer than they then they really do a, a justice to with her like walking around because mm. they're more focused on the drama of her intimidating him. But if you remember, she walks back to the board, like how many times, what three, three times. four, three times. Three times. Okay. So you made, and I can tell you many more moves than three moves were played in this game. That's like, what I was looking. I was like, like Oh, may, yeah. I was like, Oh, maybe she puts the, you know, you know, knight uh, or the rook up. It's like, and then I was like, okay, but then what's no, her but next even move? they flash the final position, they flash mm. the final position and you can see it's like way down the road, right? Gotcha. Like a, okay. a lot of things have come off the board. In fact, um, I can even set up the final position for our, for our, um, haven't done it yet, but I'll save it for, uh, our, our viewers who want to see it as far as why, uh, Stellwagen or, uh, Gria resigns and it is easily 15 moves later. So yes. they don't they don't really do that accurately, but it's it's not super relevant. I think it's just caught up in the emotions of the moment and um, she beats him. But but no, they don't. The game is not over in three moves. Gotcha. Yeah. And he resigns in the traditional. Um, yeah. In the I traditional old fashioned way. Yeah. Knocks over his king in general. Yeah. This is great because Beth at this point has brought herself back together. She's realizing, hey, you know, this kid at some point was one of the hardest matches I've played. She acknowledges that even though I think it's a lie to make him feel okay about it. She says, you know, the, you're the best I've ever played, which I don't think that's true. Um, maybe it is, maybe it's not. I feel like she just said that to say that because, you know, she's like, you know, I have never seen, been to the drive-ins and blah, 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 and all this stuff kind of like, you know, is personal again. But then he's like talking about that. He wants to be world champion and blah, blah, blah by 16. And she's like, but then, but then what? And then what? And he's like, I don't understand. I, love I don't, that. I don't understand. And Heather stopped me. She's like, well, what is going on in Russia in chess? And this time I'm like, to me talking to Danny, it was a very different shift, right? I think that in Russia and correct me if I'm wrong, when we talk about the, the Russia sixties, fifties, seventies, I feel as though it was like Russia was the best at the thing, right? They had the tops in the world, but they literally seeked out the players and 
handcrafted them to be the best players in the world compared to America, which is like, hey, you might be good, but you're going to have to fend for yourself uh, to the top, right? It's not like the Olympics in the way that, like to me, it was chess was like the Olympics in Russia compared to chess in America wasn't that way or nor have I don't know if it ever has been in a way. Uh, So totally accurate. And they do a great job of kind of, um, you know, depicting that. And, you know, remember that the Soviet Union was, uh, you know, a world power, not not just Russia. Right. Yeah, it was correct. the Soviet, Soviet Union. Union. And, I, yes. and the only reason I keep clarifying that is because it's um, well, one, it's it's a very important storyline as we get into the, um, you know, the parts with Borgov and we talk about the KGB being with him in this episode. I've yep. not, got notes <laughs> on that, but um, it's the Soviet Union was obviously a massive, you know, amount of now like multiple countries and states. Right. So like, you know, I mean, entire Eastern Europe. Right. It wasn't mm-hmm. just Russia. You're yeah. talking like, you're, you know, so. uh and yeah, it it was. I, I wouldn't say it's exactly like, oh my God, a hero is born and they show up and they're like, your child is the second coming of this person, right? Like, yeah. obviously, they didn't have that kind of foresight, but because chess was so systemic and a part of the culture in in the Soviet Union, talented uh, players were recognized very early and given opportunities super early, and then the cream of the crop rises even from that cream of the crop, and then the mm. cream of the crop of that, right? So the the Bodvinnik Chess School. Um, I talked about Bodvinnik being the father of of the Soviet chess, you know, really just regime. Um, he was a world champion, but he's often referred to as the father of the Soviet Union chess. And um, the Bodvinnik Chess School is where Gary Kasparov, I just mentioned the 13th world champion, right? Um, the intimidating Gary Kasparov, Anatoly Karpov. Uh, you know, you have all these guys, Bosky, Petrosian, those guys were kind of rivals of Bodvinnik. But that whole next generation that came up through the 70s, 80s and 90s, all attended the Botvinnik School of Chess, like mm. for sure, right? And the and the talented players that were recognized young were given tons of opportunity, and so for him to become world champion is not only always been his dream, but probably all that's been instilled in him as his life option forever, right? And so I'll just say now, I think that dialogue that goes down between Beth and Griev is kind of like Beth's mom and her, in that you know the the, the overarching note that I made about the show, which is that to me, the message from the very beginning is there's more to life than just chess. Right. And like you said, it's stop and smell the roses, but it's like, Hey, like the beginning of the episode, it's about her, you know, becoming a woman and losing her virginity and all the things that go there. And then, and then it's like the mom pushing her to get outside the box in terms of what might help her play her best chess. It's not just X's and O's, right. It's, you know, get out and, and, and smell the roses. And then it's like her direct question of this kid being like, well, what's after you reach world champion? And he's like, I don't understand, right? And it's like she's delivering a message to him, right? A young, a young person growing up in the Soviet Union who's clearly fascinated by American culture with his questions about the drive-in movies, right? Mm-hmm. And she kind of gets him thinking, hey, there's more to life than just chess, little guy, right? Yeah. And yeah. and I think that that's just kind of the overarching message of this um, this episode. And now, you know, now we're going to get into the big, you know, the big moments that happen here in the end, not just between her and Borgoff, but in, you know, in terms of what happens with her mom. Very true. Yeah. And we, we see the next scene, the elevator scene, as I like to call it, where Beth, we obviously know, knows some Russian, uh, not sure the extent of Russian that she knows, but we can assume that she clearly knows that Borgov, and then also 
Um, two members who are the second and third best players in uh, the world are with uh, Borgov, sort of like the crew, if you will, yep. and also some handlers, I like to call them, which Mike and Matt say they're KGB um, right. uh, with them, which I think they said like, oh, so he doesn't run off, which, uh, you right. know. So, so this is it. This is the zinger. So that is a very real thing. I believe it. Yeah. That, yeah. And not only like a very real thing, but um, Spassky and Karpov were consistently trailed as they traveled internationally, as were many other um, top Russian players, not even the world's most talented. In fact, any tournament internationally where Soviet players, I keep saying Russian, Soviet players were, were there, there was almost always the presence of a KGB agent. In fact, my, my coach, uh, the late Igor Ivanov, who, who died of, of cancer um, some years back, um, he actually, you know, trained me for many, many years. He was also, um, an alcoholic and very well known throughout the chess community as, you know, like some crazy stuff would happen at chess tournaments. He was at like, you know, like pouring hot coffee on himself on the board and not even noticing that he did because he was so drunk. I won't get into all that, but like my coach, Igor Ivanov was legendary in terms of not just his alcohol consumption, but his chess, but he was also legendary because he was one of the first really like publicized and glorified defections from the Soviet union. In fact, he played, uh, in the Capablanca Memorial in Havana, Cuba in 1980 after, so Igor, Igor won, God, I should, I know his whole life, but I should wiki it, but Igor won a, a Soviet Union championship in 78, I think, or even 79, he tied for first. Hmm. Um, and then he also beat Anatoly Karpov in 79. Um, so the, so the point is Igor was an up and comer, but he was only an international master. He wasn't even a grandmaster, mm. right? But he was an up and comer and got an invitation to play in the Capablanca Memorial. And Igor told me this story, which later was documented by others. And at first I didn't know how realistic it was, but he said he literally was going back to the plane after the event in Havana, in Havana, Cuba to get on the plane and go back to St. Petersburg. He was from Leningrad uh-huh. and he literally physically ran for the embassy like border and the KGB chased him. And he literally like jumped over like the line and the Soviet KGB agents couldn't pull him back. Oh, wow. And, and it's actually in his Wikipedia page that he defected and it became very public because he got away from the Soviet union with a, with an aggressive and public defection later on settled in Montreal, Canada. And Igor eventually um, lived in the States and, and, you know, and, and played in a lot of, a lot of tournaments and became kind of a, a well-known fixture of the American kind of like Grand Prix series. Actually, he played in events all over the U S but, um, but yeah, it was a very well publicized and documented defection of a top chess player from the Soviet union. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So realistic yeah, so is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. So what I'm saying is I had to say, yeah, by the way, I Google, I, I wiki did well, I finished my story. I didn't look at it, but I was right. Yeah. He beat Karpov in 79. He got an invitation to the Capablanca Memorial in 1980. And yes, that's when he defected. Wow. Um, and literally, um, yeah. So, okay. He got on the plane in Havana, but there was a stop in Montreal. That's right. And he defected while in Canada. Mm, that's crazy. And that's very crazy. famous story. So anyway, sorry, go ahead. I just want, I really wanted to add that because one, it's a very personal story for me and mm-hmm. Igor, was someone who both negative and positively, I mean, I've made jokes on shows where I say, you know, I say something like you made a blunder. Now, if I was my racist, Russian, abusive, alcoholic chess coach, this is what I would say to you. And when I say that, I'm not kidding. I had, I was, and Igor was, Igor was an overt racist. Um, Igor was not the best human being. He wasn't, he was an alcoholic. Um, he was, um, 
he was a member of the Soviet Union. He was a Russian, but um, and Igor, Igor was also, you know, I loved Igor and I knew Igor very well. And he left a positive impact on me because that's what I choose to focus on, not the negative impact stuff. Um, and uh, but he was a very influential and well-known character of the United States, you know, chess community. And he's one of the most publicly and well-documented defection stories ever from the Soviet Union. Uh, yeah. And, th- and that's the type of stuff we bring here on Blunders because mm-hmm. um, real life facts. I mean, it's really fascinating because I think, you know, you and I have been friends for you know decade plus or whatever. And there's actually a lot of your past that I don't know as much. And I continue to learn these things. And hopefully our listeners are um, fascinated by these stories because it's, it's it's crazy to think about that those things yeah. happen. Like, it's actually crazy to think in 2020, like, going and traveling and learning and you know, playing chess in Russia right now. Like, like, yeah. It's kind of mind boggling. I, I mean, like, and honestly, I've never told the story that direct and there's more to it. I could tell. I mean, I've told people some of the real, you know, ugly stuff that, I mean, I, I, my parents really left me alone with him way too much. I was making the man screwdrivers, vodka, or shoes at the age of 12 because they wanted me to get good. And I spent a lot of time with Igor, but anyway, so I've never told that full story, but yeah, Igor, Igor had a lot of stories for me, but that particular one was, was not, was not uh, exaggerated at all. He, he had a very real experience of physically jumping away from the KGB. And make sure you subscribe to our new podcast, After Hours <laughs> Chess with Danny After, uh, Unlocking the mysteries and dysfunction of why Danny goes to therapy twice a month. Now available on your favorite podcast app. Oh, okay. <laughs> so um, before we get into this match, there's there's a, a weird point in, bata- in between where we know Borgrav is going to open. Uh, Borgrav is white. Uh, Mike and Matt, who like to show up randomly in this episode, they like to say, in the future, in the future, Danny, when computers play chess, white will always win, just like in tic-tac-toe. And Danny, you have the um, computer chess championship and you have these engines. Can you, there's no one better to talk about computer chess than Danny Wrench, I think, in 2020. I, well... I appreciate that. I don't know if that's totally true, but I, I do. I do. Yeah. I'm, I'm probably one of, one of the most qualified and yeah. So our computer chess championship is running 24 seven. It's almost like a, a project of love for my partner and, and our CEO, Eric, who is fascinated by where the neural nets are taking our game. This podcast is going to be a lot longer than 90 minutes if we go down that road. So what I'll just say is for those who didn't follow the emergence of alpha zero from the Google deep mind project, mm-hmm. you have been under a rock and neural nets while chess has always been on the forefront of where computers are affecting humans, but I mean, some of the most infamous matches ever are Gary Kasparov, right? The Russian versus the IBM computer. People who don't even remember Kasparov's name will say things like, yeah, there was that match by the guy from Russia versus the IBM deep blue computer. Remember? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you've really made it when people can describe who you are without saying your name. Like they say, who's that American who became world champion? They may not remember his name was Bobby Fischer, but they know of him, right? Yeah. So, so computers have always been very closely entwined with chess, but even more so in the last few years because of the, the, the jump into the world of what will eventually become Skynet and kill us all. And don't worry, I'll be your John Connor, baby. I'll be there for you. But eventually we know Skynet's going to become self-aware and launch the missiles. It'll probably be some version of Alpha Zero, which was the chess computer launched by Google's DeepMind, which has now been taken and replicated by so many um you know, chess engine developers, there's so many hybrids now of what's called Leela. Leela, she's referred to as a girl, which is funny, even though it's a computer, but Leela is 
in many ways, the strongest chess engine right now, but her core is a combination, especially the hybrid versions of, of neural, of a neural network. So something humans gave minimal, like no influence over and just let it teach itself chess combined with sort of hybrid influence of the strongest chess engine technology where we have taught the computers the right way to think about the game, right? Taught them how to make sacrifices where they give up the math to gain a greater mathematical edge in the end, which is ultimately like checkmate, right? So Mm -hmm. I'll just say this. It's a fascinating thing. The people that are rabid in this community are seriously rabid. We basically just pay for these servers to have the top chess engines, neural nets and otherwise battling it out all the time. And you can go there right now. Like it's just streaming with no commentary on Twitch to somewhere between like a couple hundred to like a thousand viewers just all the time. The chess.com slash CCC is running nonstop. Computers are not winning when they're white. In fact, most games are drawn to Mm. to go back to our uh, Queen's Gambit episode that Mike and Matt referenced. Most games are drawn, but it is true that you almost never see a victory with black. Like you see, you see a lot of draws. And then occasionally you see these brilliancies by these computers as white. You almost never see victories as black, but, but even that isn't true. You, it does happen on occasion. And, and so Mike and Matt, while they were right that white has the edge, they were wrong that it would be, it would be that clear. Yeah. And and of course in the real world, human versus human, they're not talking about engines and talking about computer chess we see that obviously black and Beth has won as black um, many a times here. Right. So it's, it's um, highly possible, but do I mean in your professional opinion? I mean, I have to imagine that yes, playing white is an advantage in a level of chess. Let's say you're not doing speed chess, right? Cause I think it's, it's different there too um, because it's faster play. There's probably some advantage there, but like in a, in a world championship, what is the level of, of advantage to be white to start off is it is it you know astronomical is it negligible is it is it in between what is what are we talking here it's about what you see in databases which white wins in most mainline opening theory Hmm. about 56 percent of the time Hmm. so it's a small edge right 56 57 you know somewhere between honestly 54 and 57 percent of the time so you play 100 games right? And you're going to get a lot of draws. White's going to have an edge a few games, right? And, mm-hmm. and at, the, at the top levels of chess, those who followed the world championship over the last few years, you know that in 2018, we had 12 straight draws between Magnus Carlsen and Fabiano Caruana, the American challenger. And the match was eventually decided in rapid because when the time controls get faster, people make more mistakes. They have less time to think their way through, mm-hmm. you know, the dark forest that is chess, right? Um, yeah. So, so at a high level, games amongst the top humans are very influenced by preparation mm. of the top computers. I mean, I say this phrase often when I'm doing chess commentary that, hey, that game was won in the kitchen, gotcha. right? That game was won. That game was won at home, right? That position was winning for Jan Nepomnishi of Russia before we even reached move 25. And mm. it's very clearly that that was home cooking. I like to use kitchen references, but people say it all the time, right? Like that game was won in the office, not at the board. Gotcha. Right. And, and so because top engines are used so heavily, the results are very similar to top engine on engine action, the PG kind, not rated X edition computers gone wild, you know, um, meaning, meaning a lot of draws and every once in a while, someone out prepares or out ideas an opponent who maybe dismissed like, Oh, that's equal. But someone went a little further to reveal 
no, this sacrifice actually in the end is really good for white. Right. So it's, you know, it's a different type of chess than you were playing in the sixties. Right. There was, Mm. you know, intuition is still there and the best players in the world can still beat each other, but there's a lot of preparation done by the best players in the world are not human anymore. Right. They're computers. And so, um, and so they also heavily influence the top human players. And so you get results that are close to 50, 50 with small edges for white. Now with these championships, like this international, when it came, comes to the final match, would it be just one match and that's it? Because you were just talking about the, the, the Carlson match, right? Um, a good friend Magnus, like that's seven matches. Is, is it more like the NBA or like, are a lot of the final tournaments, like here's one and that's it, right? Well, the, um, so like you're how, asking like the, tur- what's the tournament to, format that decides the world champion kind of? Yeah. Cause wouldn't it be fair that, that, Hey, these are the best two players. So we're going to do best of seven or whatever, best of right, three right. or is it just one match? And like, Hey, no matter no, what, no, no. Like, well, it's, it. it's one, it's one match, but it matches many games. So the typical world championship match, or let's say world championship cycle, which is actually running right now and was delayed due to our, the global pandemic that we all face is you have a series of tournaments, usually four to six that are grand prix events and people earn points. Mm. The top point getters amongst the top players, the people, the people who are in the top grand prix points, along with a few, you know, direct invitationals, like whoever the previous challenger was gets an automatic invite. Maybe the local organizer of the candidates gives one wild card, but overall you get events with eight players. That is a double round Robin. This is called the candidates. And the winner of the candidates challenges the current world champion. Hmm. So it's a it's a Grand Prix system that describes the candidates. The candidates play a, a usually like a month long event, which was postponed halfway through during COVID back in back in March. Um, and then the candidates, which is set to resume this April in 2021, will decide the challenger to the world title. And then the world championship match will be a 12 game classical match. Mm. If nobody has won after regulation, we will have a tiebreaker in rapid, which is what happened both the last two matches in 2018 and 2016. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Now, so for in, for this international Borgov V Harmon, is it realistic that there's just one match and that's it in this international style tournament? Yeah, no, this is, this is realistic. Okay. It's not, um, yeah, it's not, it's not, this is an event that would be just what we would call a category one tournament, right? It's a mm. bunch of the top world players there and, you know, a bunch of elite players. There's probably a decent prize fund and they're just playing each other. It's, okay. um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think the chess cycle is, it's kind of similar to tennis in that there's a lot of like major grand slams that don't necessarily decide who the world champion is. They're just big events, right? And the only difference is that tennis doesn't actually have that that heavyweight boxing match that says, all right, now we've had all these. We know Djokovic and Federer are the best, and they're going to play a best of seven over two weeks tennis, and we're going to see who the best is, right? Mm. Which, would, by the way, would be freaking badass. I mean, yeah. that, that's kind of a cool thing. I think a lot of people have encouraged chess to go more the route of tennis and realize, look, you don't even need a world championship match. Just have major events running all the time. And whoever the number one is ranked tennis player in the world, that's just who everyone kind of knows is the best. But then people have said, no, actually, one of the things that's sexy about chess and has been proven is that regardless of of where chess may need to grow, every couple of years you have that event that is like the heavyweight boxing, Ali Mm. Frazier, that everyone stops and goes, 
you know, Morpheus is fighting Neo, right? Yeah, and everyone yeah. comes and watches. And I think that tennis, you could argue, while you have Wimbledon and the Australian Open and, and the French Open, whatever, you could argue that all those things, maybe they also would benefit from like a single event every two years that's like, now you get these four guys. We get Nadal, Djokovic, Federer, and, you know, whoever together, right? Songa together, and they're going to throw down in this like month long round robin. Mm. And that guy is the world tennis champion. Right. Gotcha. I think people might like that. So anyway. Yeah. Cool. All right. Borgov V Harmon. Let's get into it. Um, let's talk about the opening here. This is a Rasa, Rasa Limo, Rasa Limo, Rasa Limo, Rasa Limo, Rasa, Rasa, Rasa Limo. Now this is a great. rare opening because we know that Borgov is a Sicilian master. Basically that's what they right. kind of team up as here. So, this is a rare opening, um, the Rosalimo. Can you talk about this opening a little bit and how this sort of So the of dialogue pairs? is a little awkward from our, our Spanish-speaking ajedrez, mm-hmm. to say chess en espanol. Our ajedrez, uh, you know, the, the broadcaster extraordinaire. It's a little awkward because he says, like, Borgov is the, Sicil- is the Sicilian master, and so now Beth Harmon plays pawn to queen's bishop four, which is an attempt to, like, do something he doesn't know, which by the way is the Sicilian. So that, that I made, I made very detailed notes of this. I was like, that's mm-hmm. a little, that's not totally accurate. Then he plays the Rosalimo with Bishop to B five, but they actually don't define it as the Rosalimo until Beth plays queen to B six. Yeah. Which is, in, which is inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Um, Borgov is the one who plays the Rosalimo and Beth's post game uh, description to the, to the, to her mother laying in bed is actually more accurate than the real-time Ahadres commentary mm-hmm. um, in that she says, basically, he played this system that's not very known. I didn't know what to do about it. And then it was all, like, you know, systematic from there. He was a machine, right? Yeah. Her her post-game depiction is very accurate. And and we know that Borgov goes on to win this game and that he did indeed dominate her Sicilian and he did indeed play a system that she didn't know. And he obviously frustrated her and... And she tells her mom, I'm, I'm glad you didn't get to see it, right? Because I didn't want mm-hmm. you to be upset or whatever. So Beth's post-game depiction is perfect. The real-time one, I had to just point out those two inaccuracies. Like, you don't say that Beth did something to throw him off when she literally just played Pawn to Queen's Bishop 4, which is the Sicilian. Yeah. And and he only describes it as she plays the Rosalima, which is inaccurate. He's the one who plays the Rosalima with Bishop B5, which for the record, by the way, just funny coincidence, I didn't plan on this but you and i just spent a bunch of time talking about carlson caruana 2018 mm-hmm. the rosalimo was a regularly featured system in that 2018 world chess championship oh it was played it was played often but at this time in the 60s it's a very good depiction to say that it was kind of a sideline not something she would know very well gotcha gotcha and then so they nailed it nailed it hashtag nailed it what's that thing that she says on that show Nailed it. Nailed it. Um, so we get to go to the end game here. We know that best mom does not show up, even though Mike and Matt have saved the spot um, for her. We're at this end game that comes up in this fashion. And and Beth is, it's not good. Uh, that bar, the analysis bar on the left-hand side <laughs> is- Plus eight for white. Plus eight, plus 8.09 for white. Um, it, now, also, by the way, really quick, give the 10-second pinch of what that means- in the real world, plus eight oh nine. I have no idea what that actually means. <laughs> it means white is completely winning. Yeah. Um, I, I think that at the high levels, anything that goes beyond plus three very rarely goes back. Mm. Now at Blitz and Bullet, it does. I mean, if you watch the Speed Chess Championship, you know, final between Nakamura and MBL, it, people do make blunders in Blitz and Bullet. Mm-hmm. But at over the board chess, 
like never does an advantage from plus three not get converted to a win. O- o- almost almost never among the world's elite. It's very rare. Um, something beyond plus five, I would say almost like with with hundred percent certainty, the top players win. The reason I would say even even plus one point five to three is a significant advantage and most of the time converted. But there are times where the eval bar or let's say the engine just giving that mathematical evaluation of hey, white's up plus two here. Uh, which is, by the way, a cent a pawn, like it's supposed to be like worth a pawn, even if it's not exactly a pawn on the board. It's mm-hmm. just the computer's way of saying this guy's kind of like up two pawns in the position, the way that we've taught them to 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 sort of spit out uh, an evaluation for us to understand. Um, it, it can be a little murky, even though I would say plus 1.5 to plus three is most of the time going to be one, probably. It can slide back the other way because, you know, there can often be enough complications that a human being is not going to play as perfect as an engine would and not convert on it. Um, but you know, that's what that means is white is winning. Gotcha. So that white bar is very high. This is where we see Mr. Scheibel yet again. And, um, Beth knows what to do. And she, she does what, uh, Grev did to her and she, 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 you know, forfeits it's over. You know, she, yeah, she resigns, she resigns, um, and she's not happy about it. And that's the end of the match really. And I think that you know, we know by earlier dialogue that she will be in Paris. We know that Borgov will be in Paris. Um, and also mis- from the first episode of the entire show. Yes, we know, that. we know that as well. Right. And we know now, funnily enough, um, we were talking about Borgov and I was like, remember that very first scene in the very first second? I was like, that was Borgov. And she's like, oh, my God. Right. Like it's it's finally come full circle where, you know, why that very opening scene in openings is very important because we're at this sort of match in the future, which I'm excited about when we get there, which I don't know much about uh, yet. But we get to the next scene here, which, you know, is very sad in this regard because there's two things that happen. Um, Now, Danny, I don't know about you, but when you lose a chess match and you're very upset, do you go up to your room and start taking off all of your clothes? (laughs) Um, Always. Okay. I get... I get butt naked, yep. butt naked. Yep. Um, that was, that was, de- you, you made a comment early on in the um, episode that they, that you felt that they unnecessarily sexualized Beth. And I assume this is exactly what you're referring to right here. Yeah, this scene made no sense. Okay. We know that Beth's mom is, is up in the room. She, she, like you said, she's doing this great job of describing the chess match. She is describing Borgov as this by the books. He shows no weakness. It's like, he doesn't even have a soul in some way, just very stern, on there, but at the same time, she's undressing, and we basically just see this seventeen-year-old at the time. Like we, you know, she's not naked, right? She has like this older school bra, on, but you know, back then there were more wires, and we see, you know, for no re- like I don't understand the context of the direction, but it felt to me a very out of place and very unnecessarily sexualized. Um, for no reason. I, and I, I just yeah. thought that it added zero value. In fact, it sort of made me um, rewatching it, especially I was like, what is going on here? Like, what I don't I was like, why are they doing this? Because it kind of devalues. The, to me, the whole show in some way, like it was very unnecessary um, yeah. compared to the I beginning, mean, I- which we understand she's in this scenario with this boy, the schmuck. Right. And that that's fine. But it, it, it was just me. I just want to bring it up for context that there was yeah. no value add here besides to sexualize her for no reason. I, I, I totally hear you. And I'll, I'll, um, I, I think that's totally fair. I, I'll push back for the sake of saying 
one point potentially like I, I may be reaching a little bit, but one like kind of subconscious point I think they're trying to to imply, especially because we know that she ultimately finds her mother dead in the bed. And, and at this point, you've seen the episode, everyone, mm-hmm. so don't get mad at me. And so what I wanted to say is that they're doing something there, which is like Beth feels safe with her mom mm-hmm. and only her mom. Yeah. And I agree that one, it's it's Hollywood, it's movies, right? It's Anya Taylor-Joy. She's the lead female role in a movie where, you know, I mean, I, I think that they're they're clearly doing something, like you said, that seems to devalue the show because they're over-sexualizing a character mm-hmm. purely because that's what you do in Hollywood and you have an attractive female lead and so you sexualize them, right? I mean, this is something that, that shows do. And I, I would say I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt because they don't ever go out of their way to show nudity in the show. Yeah. Like this, that is not something they do. And I'm sorry if I'm ruining spoilers for episodes, you know, five, six, and seven, but they don't. And so because I know that they don't, like, I kind of looked at this as one, it was odd. I agree. And it definitely stood out to me watching the second time, but there's something that she's doing. Like she's sort of like letting her guard down hmm. with her mom. She's like, it's not just, you know, sort of venting about how Borgoff just destroyed her, but she's getting out of her uncomfortable clothes that she has to wear in this like male dominant world. She's just like stripping down and being real Beth and expressing herself in terms of how she feels vulnerable about how she just got, you know, dominated by this guy. And then like twist ending Beth Harmon's life is about to get even harder. We're in the, we're in the midst of a real tragic seven episode show. Everyone buckle up because mom is dead in the bed and, and from alcohol, not necessarily, we'll say alcohol over an entire lifetime, right? Kind of. Yeah. And so that's all going to be my pushback. And, and I don't I don't disagree with you. I, I found it slightly out of place, but I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt that maybe you don't have because I already know that I don't find that this director and the writing ever went out of their way to add unnecessary like graphic nudity or, nudity or sexuality. They, they clearly sexualize her, but it's also, you know, the story of a woman coming into her age. And, and we see what happens with male characters later on in the show, which I won't spoil. But because I don't feel like they ever crossed the boundary, I kind of looked at this as like, she's just like pissed. She's like throwing off her her, mm. her clothes and she's going to take a bath because she's got to relax and she's going to vent with her mom and this and that. And that's somewhere who she feels so safe with. And then, oh my God, like mom, what happened to you, right? So that's my yeah. only pushback, but I, I do I do hear you. And I definitely see it. I think that, you know, again, it's hard to be, we're both white cis males, right? Talking on this podcast to the best of our analogy. While I do... I'm heavily involved in DNI exercises and heavily involved with conversations with people in my life. I can't, you know, relate. But I can say this is if it was the opposite in this, and this is me talking about movie and television and not, you know, chess, which is which is what we like to do on this podcast, because I, I come from that background too, is like, listen, if Borgov had lost this match and we follow Borgov back into his room, is Borgov stripping down and looking at himself and were we looking at him? We're not, by the way. So I think that's where we, if we flip it, it's there. Yeah, I agree. I think you almost would have like been just like, like a, you know how movies can do a lot with one line of dialogue, like, ah, come in. I'm so frustrated. I can't wait to take a shower. Like, can you believe this happened? Right. Maybe if you say that, right. Or something like that, like it makes it like, all right, well, she was on her way to take a bath right, or something. You're, I, I you're missing context, that context, right? You're mixing context. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And um, and yeah, so anyway, so yeah, then let's, you know, so she loses this game. She vents to her mom and then the big Ugh. ending of our episode is, is oh my God. Um, 
Mrs. Wheatley's gone. She's she's Mrs. Wheatley's gone. She's there still. You know, it's um heartbreaking in many aspects, not only to to watch Beth go through this again, right? Um, in this in this vein. She's lost two moms at this point. She's alone in Mexico, right? Um she's still we Mrs. Wheatley earlier says that she wasn't feeling well, that she had caught a virus. We find out that we believe it's hepatitis. And there's many forms of hepatitis, which is a virus um, uh, of the liver, right? And and you can you can get vaccinated. A lot of people are vaccinated against hepatitis now, but you know this can have an onset of of alcohol as well, which we we see this long term thing here. So we believe that maybe that is the case. Poor Beth in this um, entire scene. We go through the the, the hotels there to help her to get her on the plane. She gets a hold of Mr. Wheatley, the worst. I have it written down. Mr. Wheatley is the worst. Literally, what what a schmuck. You know what I what mean? What a jerk. Right? What a jerk. I mean, just absolutely the uh, worst. It's just, I, I'm not even gonna, I don't want to foreshadow, Ugh. but I'm sorry, buddy. It doesn't get any better. Oh, like he's no. just not a good dude. Like he's just oh, a bad guy. No. He's a bad guy throughout the show. Um oh, so bad. Um, but I, yeah. I do like the end part, which is um, she asked the doctor who's helping take them, take her mom away. They're going to fly her back to Lexington, going to get her buried. Beth is going to get the house or that's what Mr. Wheatley says. And she asked the doctor if she can get some, you know, medication, basically some, some, some greenies, some greenies. Some greenies. And, um, the doctor said, in Mexico, you don't need a prescription for that. Just go down <laughs> to the office. And at the, at the very end, we see her walk into the pharmacy they give her the pill and she says mas, which is more in Spanish, right? And um, I'm 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 excited for that because we we now have an in as to Beth now knows that she can basically go to Mexico at any time and get as many tranquilizers as she wants. Um, but yeah, that's oh, by the way, the very end scene on the plane back, she has Gibson's, which is yep, and that's there's a an tribute, em- to, her a tribute to her mom with the empty seat next to her. So a send off to Mrs. Wheatley, a very sad episode. I literally texted you and I said, sad episode. Um, Because not only did Beth lose, but lost again, right? So this middle game, which this middle episode could be actually tragic end game. Right. (laughs) Well, what I I said was, and I was going to say it for the end, but that already said earlier, I think that's what the show, this episode's about is that there's more to life than chess, right? I mean, like everything from the beginning of what happens with her and, and her experiences to like how she talks to this kid and then what happens with her that you don't see. I mean, I didn't see it coming when I watched it and I was kind of upset. I was like, why didn't mom make it to Paris and whatever? Why did the writers do that? But then you realize like, you know, she had the experience with Manuel. It was like, she, you know, maybe she found some happiness she had never really found in her life with a healthy relationship with a guy that really loved her. Right. And she had a great time in, in, in terms of experiences. She certainly didn't get with Mr. Wheatley, yeah. Mr. Bad guy. Ugh. Right. Um, and so I kind of was like, and I liked it better the second time. I, the first time I was like, that was an odd way to write the mom out of the show. That was unnecessary. That was, I, I, and watching it, I was like, you know what? In the end of this episode, like the message is clear. Like Beth, you know, her tragic life continues, her chest talent continues, but she's being shown like, look, look, welcome to the real world. This is a struggle. Borgov is not going anywhere. And there's more to life than just chess. Your mom wanted you to experience that. She was constantly pushing you to realize that. And, and now she's gone, right? Which just is the ultimate sign up that there's more to life than chess. Right. And I think, so again, knowing where the show go, I thought this was actually, it wasn't my favorite episode of all of them because of maybe just because it was sad and dark, but I don't feel like 
in the end, it was bad. And knowing where the whole show goes, I really feel like it sets the tone for a back half that is going to be drama field full of obstacles to overcome for Beth Harmon. And we get, we pay a tribute by the way, I had Gibson's um, the other night with my buddy Dallin, because we wanted to pay tribute to the queen's gambit and all new people learning chess. He's like, dude, let's make Gibson's. So we <laughs> nice. did. And uh, by the way, they're gross. So <laughs> onions do not, onions do not go well with martinis. I prefer a traditional martini with olives. That's pretty much the only difference is a, is a, the a um, fermented sort of, you know, soured onion um, versus a, an olive. Um, and uh, I prefer the traditional martini. I'm going to try one. That's going to be next weekend. We're going to give it yeah. a go. Um, to Gibson's. Well, we will, we will get to that back half of the Queen's Gambit next week. That's right. We will come in on episode five. We hope that you've enjoyed your journey along with us uh, in this podcast. Of course, you can reach out to us anytime. Go to blunders.fm. You can leave comments on the show or just email us. There's a contact button. We also post these shows um, on YouTube. So uh, you can also, it, it, it's there. So if you want to comment on YouTube and watch it there in the background, some people enjoy that much more. Or you can subscribe in your favorite podcast application. We are everywhere on Amazon, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Overcast, on all the podcast applications. We, of course, would love a review. That helps more people find the podcast. The optimal way to help find people find the podcast is just share it with them. Say, hey, check out this podcast. Share with a friend. You, you know we're, we're literally sitting here remotely on Zoom discussing Queen's Gambit right now. Check out this podcast. And then, boom, hopefully you can watch it back with us. I've enjoyed this so far. I'm excited to get into the back half of this series danny thank you so much for breaking it down um i think that's going to do it for this week's uh, blunders anything else from you buddy no man you did you did the thing uh, reminding everyone of all the things to follow and support i can't wait for episodes five six and seven i really am excited at this point and uh and yeah we'll see you then next time peace <laughs>